Okay, folks, open up your Bibles or take your tablet or phone, whatever you're using for a Bible today, and let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4. Let's, uh, let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Heavenly Father, I'm asking you today if you would work through your word in the hearts, especially of fathers. But Lord, not just fathers, all of us. But I do ask especially for fathers, Lord, that you would speak to them. And Lord, for those fathers that weren't able to be here today, I pray that they would uh, get online and listen to the message that, Lord, you would encourage them and speak to their hearts, exhort them, motivate them. I pray for any that might in later days, just by visiting the website, listen to this message, be instructed and encouraged and exhorted that they would be the kind of father you want them to be. <clears throat> So, Lord, we lift this to you. Pray for your supernatural blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, as you recall, last week we talked about two commands that are given to children. Obey and honor. Obey is speaking about the action. Honor is speaking about the attitude that produces the action. Both of them are commanded by God. We are to esteem highly our parents, respect them, honor them, and out of that reverence and honor, we are to do what they tell us to do. That's the basic idea. There's three reasons given. Number one, it's right. Meaning everybody in the world instinctively knows down in their heart and their conscience that this is the right thing to do. All the cultures of the world know this. Secondly, it is... Um, Smart! Thank you, Oleg. <laughs> yeah, it's smart, meaning that it's in your best interest to do it that way. Just like Debbie was just sharing, so that it may be well with you. That you might live long on the earth. Do you want to have a happy and long life? Then this is the way to have it. Obey your parents, honor your parents. And then the third reason is because you belong to Christ, and it pleases Him to do that. You find that in the phrase, children, obey your parents in the Lord, because you belong to the Lord out of obedience to the Lord, obey them and honor them. Well, we're going to go on today, verse 4, and we're switching gears here. In verses 1 to 3, Paul has been talking to children. At this point, he's switching gears, and he's going to start to talk to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How many of you have heard people say, you know, I, I'm not going to push any kind of a religion on my kids. I'm going to just sort of wait until they grow up, and then they're free to choose whatever religion they want to. Have you ever heard that before? Mm -hmm. I hear that all the time. And it sounds really noble. It's like, oh, well, yeah, that's the right thing to do. I'll just let them choose when they get old. 
You know, Satan couldn't have a better strategy in mind to damn your children than that one. <laughs> I mean, if you don't teach them the truth of God's word, they're not going to be a blank slate. They're going to be accumulating ideas as they grow up. And where are they going to get those ideas from? The world, TV, movies, the music they listen to, their friends who don't know any better than they do. They're going to be accumulating all of this garbage, this false teaching from all kinds of places. And you, as a Christian who have the Bible and who know the truth of God's word, are not imparting that truth to them. That's a very... If Satan had a plan to damn your children, I can't think of a better one than just to get you to do nothing to raise your children to know the truth of the word of God and the gospel. So Paul does not say, fathers, do nothing... And when your children get old enough, let them choose what religion they're going to believe in. He says, fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This morning, we're not going to get past the first word in verse 4. We are going to be talking about the word fathers. Now, in the succeeding weeks, we'll talk about the rest of that verse. But we need to take time to just talk about that word today, fathers. And I've got two questions to ask today. The first question is, who is ultimately responsible to bring up children? Is it the church that is ultimately responsible to bring up children and to train them and to teach them? No, I you know what the answer is? What is it? You're right. You're right. It is fathers. But a lot of times we think it's the church. And dads and moms think if we just drop our kids off at the church and then go pick them up when church is over, we've done our duty. We've given them their religious education because the church will take care of that for me. The Bible doesn't say, church, bring up all the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's not what it says, but oftentimes we can delegate that to the Sunday school teacher or the youth group leader or the Awanas club or whatever. We, we think that it's the church's job to disseminate this religious education to the children. But it's not. It's absolutely not. Now, they can play a supporting role, and it ought to. The church should have a supporting role, but ultimately they're not the final authority when it comes to bringing up children. <coughs> another, another area that we look to is the school. Sometimes we think it's the job of the school to raise our children. And the worst possible scenario is we think it's the job of the government schools, the public schools. If you, if you have that notion, oh, that, there couldn't be a worse thing you could do for your kids because they're just going to get the world's philosophy all over. Unless you're really careful, if you have your children in public schools, they're going to be taken down a, a, a wrong way because they're going to learn all kinds of worldly things rather than the truth of God's word. So, uh, government schools, of course, are not the answer to raising your children. But then we can think, well, no, I'm just going to send my kids to Christian school. And that, that can be a viable alternative for some, some folks. But, but to raise your children, do you really expect that Christian school is going to do the job of bringing up your children? Again, they can play a supporting role, but they don't have the ultimate responsibility for this. Sometimes it's not the school that we look to, but it's the preschool. Even a children preschool or a Christian uh, daycare. And thank God 
that there are Christian preschools and daycares for certain situations. Say, for example, you've got a single mom, and she has to get out there and work to provide for her kids. I mean, thank God that there are those resources available. Or in some situations, there's an unbelieving husband who tells his wife she has to go out and work a second job because he, he likes the extra income. Well, in those circumstances, maybe she's got to do that. But what do you think is the majority of cases? Why do people use daycares in the majority of cases? If we were just really honest. It's because they have a certain st standard of living or a lifestyle that they enjoy and they don't want to give that up. And they know they're going to have to give up that lifestyle if they depend on one member of the family to provide the income rather than two. Um, we, even as Christians, even in the Christian church, we buy into this philosophy, it's really the world's philosophy, that you deserve a 3,600-square-foot home. You deserve two new cars. You deserve to be able to go on that two-week vacation to the Bahamas or to Hawaii. You know, you deserve all of these things. You're a king's kid. And the way we're going to get it is by really sacrificing our kids, by not doing our job, by putting them over in the school and telling the, the teachers there, you raise my children because I want to have the extra income to enjoy life the way I like it. Now, I know I'm, I'm painting a dismal picture here, but I, I think this is the case in too many cases. I think this does happen a lot. So it's not the, the job of the church. It's not the job of the school. You know what? It's not even, ultimately, the job of mothers. Did you see our text? Fathers. Fathers. Bring up your children in, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, of course, mothers are going to be involved, aren't they? Paul uses the word parents in verse 1. Plural. Mothers and fathers. Children are to obey both parents, mother and father. Verse 2, honor your father and your mother. So children are to obey and honor both of their parents. And if, if a mother loves her children, she's going to be very involved in the bringing up of those children. But it's not her ultimate responsibility for their upbringing. The Bible says, ultimately, that job is given to fathers. And that's something that we, as fathers often don't realize. In fact, we're very happy to let our wives and the mom bring up the children while we pursue the work, being out in the workplace. But one of the things we need to come to grips with today is it is our responsibility. And we can't shirk this responsibility. On Judgment Day, God is going to hold us responsible for our children because He gave that responsibility to us, men. It's our job. So we are going to be talking, number one, about this. The fathers are ultimately responsible to bring up their children. God will hold us responsible for that work. So that's, that's the first question. This is the responsibility of us dads. The second question is, well, then why do fathers need to apply themselves to this work? And I'm going to give you four reasons. The first reason is because you have played a part in bringing an immortal soul into the world. I don't know how often you think about that. But when you and your wife had that baby, you brought into existence a person who will never die. A soul that's going to live forever in heaven or hell. When you go into 
to your child's room at night to tuck them into bed and to kiss them on the cheek and to turn out the light, do you ever think this is an immortal soul? This, this child of mine will never die. They're going to exist in heaven or hell. The, the sun will stop shining. The stars will be put out. The moon will cease to give its light before my child will ever cease to exist. My child's not an animal. My child is a soul, a person made in the image of God who can never cease to exist. Secondly, we need to apply dads, we need to apply ourselves to this because we have passed on the curse of sin to that child. Not only have we brought them into existence, but we passed on to them sin, a sinful nature. God is going to hold them responsible for their sin. And apart from the grace of God, they will perish. It's, you have to think of it, it's partly my responsibility. I passed on the curse of sin to this child. See, we have to assume that if Adam and Eve had never sinned, and then they had children, their children would be born without a sinful nature. Their, their, sin one, their children would be born innocent of all corruption. But instead, Satan seems to have sensed that Adam stood as the head of the human race, and if he could poison the fountain, then all of the streams flowing from that fountain would also be poisoned. And that's exactly what took place. Every individual, save Jesus Christ, every individual that is descended from Adam has been poisoned with this poison of sin. I want to just show you this from Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5 verse 1 says this, This is the book of the generations of Adam. And the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of his son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Do you see any difference going on between verse 1 and verse 3? When Adam was created, whose image is he created in? God's. When his son is, is born, whose image is he created in? His own, Adam's image. When Adam had a child, had he sinned at that time? Was he fallen or unfallen? He's fallen. He's fallen. So he's passing on a fallen image to his children. He's passing on his own sin to his offspring. And every offspring that Adam and Eve brought into existence received that sinful, corrupt nature that Adam now had. So, Adam passes on that nature to his children, they pass it on to their children, they pass it on to their children, and folks, you and I received a fallen, corrupt nature from our parents, and you pass that on to your kids. So not only did we bring them into existence, we passed on the curse of sin to our kids. So do you start to feel a little bit of the weight of responsibility that we have to lead our kids to the Savior who alone can remedy this situation in their life? Who can secure their salvation of everlasting glory? Number three, why do fathers need to apply themselves to this work? Because you are the ultimate authority in your family. 
Now I realize I'm probably way out of step with popular culture. This is, I'm sure this is politically um, incorrect for me to make these statements today. But anyway, I, I'm going to do so because I believe it's the truth. Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 22 and 23. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Here the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife. Now, if he's the head of the wife, it stands to reason he's also the head of the children. In other words, he's the authority in the ultimate authority in that family. Now, some people, when they interpret this idea of headship, they say head means source, not authority. I don't know if you've ever heard that argument before or not. But just as Adam was the source for Eve because she was created from a rib, God took the rib and made the woman from that rib, they say he was the source of the woman. And that's what it means here, that Adam is the source of, of Eve. The husband is the source of the wife. Um, I just have to question that because it says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. That's true. Christ is the source of the church, but he's more than that. In the very book, same book of Ephesians, if you go back to chapter 1, take a look at verse 22. And we could even start before that. We can start in verse 20. <clears throat> which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Now do you see there in verse 22, that the headship of Christ is linked with his authority over everything. That all things have been put under his feet, they're in subjection to him, that makes him the head. So, in the very same book, where Paul says that, husbands, you're the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, very same book, he identifies what that headship has to do with. And he doesn't mention source, he mentions authority. Christ is the ultimate authority in the universe. All things are in subjection to him. That makes him head over all things to the church. So that leads me to the conviction that the husband is not only the head of the wife, he's the head of the family. That God holds him responsible ultimately for what is done in that home. Puts a lot of onus on us, doesn't it, guys? We're very responsible before the Lord. You see... Being the head doesn't mean that we can kind of strut around being real cocky and being the dictator and tell people to go get us our slippers and bring us the newspaper while we sit in the easy chair and do it. No, it means that we're now more responsible than anybody else in that family to make sure things are done the way the Lord wants them done. Authority means responsibility. And guys, we are more responsible. I want to share a couple of Old Testament examples with you. Go back with me to the book of Genesis, please. We're going to pick up a story in Genesis chapter 18. 
This is a story of when the Lord and two angels came to visit Abraham. And they delivered a message to Abraham. After having delivered that message and having a meal, now they're on their way. Um, but we find a very interesting dialogue taking place here in Genesis chapter 18. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that, here we go, he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. I just find that a very interesting verse of Scripture. Don't you? He says, shall I hide what I'm about to do? No, I don't think I'm going to hide what I'm about to do. And the reason is because I'm going to make Abraham into a great mighty nation. And you know what's further? I've chosen Abraham to be the head of this nation so that he would com command his children. How often do you hear about people talking about fathers commanding their children? Well, the Bible does. The word command equals authority. Dads, you have authority to command your children. You have authority to enforce righteousness in the home. Notice what the authority was given for you to do. You were to command, well, Abraham was to command his children after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. His authority was in the area of enforcing righteousness and justice within his family. He was not to allow the kids to do whatever they wanted to do. He was not to permit them to grow up with any morals that they chose to choose. He was to make sure that those children embraced God and followed God's word in righteousness and justice. Okay, let's look at another one. I want you to turn with me over to the book of Joshua. Look at Joshua's life. This is Joshua chapter 24. And we'll pick it up in verse 14. Joshua 24, 14. Here we have the very end of Joshua's life. One of his final statements. Now therefore, he says to the nation of Israel, Fear the Lord, and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which were your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now I find that interesting because Joshua here is speaking not only on behalf of himself. Who's he speaking on behalf of? His house. Who's in his house? His family? His children? There may have been others, servants, that were part of that household. Joshua says, I don't know what you guys are going to do, but I've already made up my mind. And he doesn't say, I will serve the Lord. He says, we will. 
my house and me, we will serve the Lord. Now, how could he make that decision for the rest of his family? Because he was the head of that family. And he took his responsibility as head of that family seriously. And he made a covenant with God that our whole house is going to serve the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that Joshua had the ability to convert his family. N none of us do, right? Only God can save the soul. But Joshua had the responsibility to make sure that that family walked in the ways of the Lord, to enforce righteousness in that family. So, dads, we can't convert our kids, but we can make it non-negotiable that when we go to church, our kids go with us. <laughs> we don't give them the decision to go if you want to go or stay home if you want to stay. If you're part of this family, this is what we do as a family. We worship God together. You can't convert your kids, but you can require that the whole family gather together to read the scriptures and to pray and to praise God together. To worship in the home. You can do what Joshua did. You can make a decision that, that us as a family, we will worship the Lord. We will honor Him. So the third reason, fathers, why you need to apply yourselves to this work, number one, because you brought an immortal soul into the world. Number two, because you passed on the curse of sin to that child. But number three, because God holds you responsible. You are the ultimate authority, not the only, but the ultimate authority in that family. And so we need to take this very, very seriously. And then number four, because you have a natural tendency to be passive in the home. <laughs> now, I, I don't say that this is uh, a rule without exception. I'm sure there are exceptions. But I think as a general rule, men tend to be more passive in the home than their wives are. And you say, Brian, why would you say that? I think it's because women are naturally nurturers. Men are, are not naturally nurturers. I'm, I know that I'm not that way. Go back with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. I think we can learn something really instructive in the curses that God brought upon the man and then the woman when they disobeyed, disobeyed him there at the very beginning. Look at Genesis 3, 16. Now here's the curse God is bringing upon the woman. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, in these curses that God is bringing upon the serpent, the man, the woman, the ground, he's bringing frustration. What realm did God bring frustration to the woman in? You see it there? Verse 16? In what realm... Did God bring frustration to the woman as a result of sin? Oh, her desire for her husband. Her desire for her husband, but yet in spite of all that, he would rule over her. That's going to be frustrating for her. What's the other area? Childbirth. Pain and childbirth. She, the, the woman seems to be oriented naturally towards her family. Her children, her husband. God brings frustration as a curse of sin in that area of her life that she's naturally oriented to. That's where she naturally gravitates towards. Now look at the man. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Notice the curse related to the man. In what areas he find frustration? Work. In his work. He's going to sweat trying to bring forth food for his family. It's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. It's going to be difficult for him to make a living. So I'm going to draw an implication from this that men, because of the curse, find frustration in the area of their work. Women find frustration in the area of the family, their husbands and their children. That seems to me, and I'm not going to be dogmatic here, but I'm going to say it like this. It seems to me that what we find here is that men are naturally oriented towards their job, their work. Women are naturally oriented towards relationships, their husband, their children. Women seem, seem to be relationship-oriented. Men seem to be task-oriented. And generally speaking, I know there are exceptions to this. I know that fits me, and I know it fits my wife. She's super relationship-oriented, and I'm super task-oriented. I'm wired that way, and so is she. <laughs> and I don't know if everyone's like that, but I do know it works in our family. And so the curse on me is that I'm going to be frustrated trying to work and make a living. She's going to be frustrated in relationships in the family. Okay. With all that being said, it seems like women then would be more natural in terms of bringing up the children. Because they're nurturers, they're relationship-oriented, they're, they're, they're wired to want to invest energy in being active in the family. And men, they're geared towards making a living and working out outside, you know, and, and being in the workplace. And that, that's why when guys get together, it's so easy for them to start talking shop. You know, what, what's going on in your work? What's going on in my work? And when women get together, it's so easy for them to start talking about their husbands and their kids. It just naturally, it just happens, doesn't it? So, men, we're going to have to overcome this natural resistance that we have to being passive when it comes to our wife and our children, especially bringing up the children. I want to show you an example. This is a bad example from the Old Testament. So would you turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I want to bring up the story of a man named Eli. Eli was a priest in Israel. How many of you are familiar with this story of Eli and his sons? You do? Good. Well, we're going to review it then. <laughs> Eli had two sons. They were also priests because the priesthood would pass down through the families in those days. And his sons' names were Hophni and Phinehas. And I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 2 and verse 12 to get a description of what these sons were like. The Bible says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. What a description. How would you like God to describe you as a worthless person? That's how these men are described. And then he goes on to tell us why in verse 13 and continuing. It says, When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot 
All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now we might say these sons of Eli were professional ministers. They were in the full-time ministry. It was their occupation to be priests, to be devoted to the holy things of God. But yet they were unsaved. They didn't know the Lord. And in every age, you have had unconverted, unsaved ministers. In the 1700s, George Whitfield created quite a stir because he preached a sermon about unconverted men in the ministry. And people were so offended by that sermon. But yet there was a lot of truth in it. He, he could see that there were a lot of men who didn't know the Lord. They were in the sacred office of preaching the sacred gospel and they didn't know Christ in a personal way. And we have people today, throughout our land, throughout this world, who are in the ministry who don't know the Lord. It's a tragedy. And what are they doing? They're desecrating the holy things of God. Here we have the offerings that were prescribed in a very particular way in the book of Leviticus. And so, Hophni and Phinehas sent their servants, their attendants, to all those people who are offering sacrifices, and what would happen is that they would, they would bring their animal to the tabernacle. It would be killed. Part of it was to be offered to the Lord. Part of it was given to the priest. Part of it was received by the offerer himself. So three different sections would go in three different directions. The offerer would boil that meat, and then they would eat it. So Hophni and Phinehas would send their attendants to people who were boiling their meat, and he would say, just take a three-pronged fork, stick it in that pot, and whatever comes up, you take. And if they don't like it, take it by force. And punch them out and take the meat. Bring it back to me, because that's the meat I want. In fact, we, we don't even want it boiled. We want it raw, they would say. We like it roasted, not boiled. Also, you find here that they were not giving the fat to God. The fat was always the Lord's portion of the sacrifice. They were taking the portion of the meat that was supposed to be dedicated to God and they were taking it for themselves. They were satisfying their carnal, fleshly appetites and exploiting the ministry in order to gain for themselves. Do you see why God might be upset by this? And that's not all. Look at verse 22. 1 Samuel 2, 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So you had women who were serving there at the tabernacle, and Eli and Phinehas were having sexual relationships with these women who came to serve at the tabernacle. They were committing fornication. 
They're using the sacred office to fulfill their carnal desires, their sexual appetites, in complete disregard for God's holiness. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They were desecrating the holy office that God had given them. And God is upset. He's angry. Let's find out what God says in response to all of this. Verse 23. Well, first of all, let's find out how Eli responds. He said to them, Why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. That's one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Verse 25, the Lord, Hophni and Phinehas would not listen to the voice of their father. You say, well, why wouldn't they do that? Is it just because they were stubborn? Just because they had you know, kind of a contemptuous nature? They just wouldn't listen to their father? It says, because the Lord wanted to put them to death, that's why they wouldn't listen. In other words, God was bringing judgment upon these two sons who were in the ministry instead of softening their hearts to receive the instruction of their father, he hardened their hearts because he intended to kill them. And if you ever hear somebody saying today, God never does anything bad. If, any, if earthquakes happen, if tornadoes come, if anybody ever dies, it's never God, it's always the devil. Point them to that verse. God put them to death. God did it, not the devil. God did that. He did it in judgment. Now, you say, well, it seems like Eli's a good father because he, he's reprimanding them. You know, this is a pretty wimpy reprimand. It sounds more like whining to me. It sounds like he's more concerned about people talking about what his sons were doing rather than that they were offending God and His holiness. Notice the words. Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sense, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's... He was concerned about what people were saying about his sons. He wasn't necessarily concerned about them breaking the law of God and violating and desecrating God's law. And so he's wimping out. He has no spine, no backbone to enforce righteousness in his family. So what does God do? He sends a prophet in verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling? And notice this, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering and of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I indeed say that your house 
and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Did you catch that? God is saying that Eli was despising him in the way he allowed unrighteousness to go rampant in his family members. He was despising God and abdicating his authority as the head of that family. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fall, excuse me, fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the incense of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. That was God's judgment upon those wicked sons, worthless men who didn't know the Lord. Now, let's go over to chapter 3, verse 11. Here God is speaking to the young boy Samuel. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Love that expression. In other words, they're going to be amazed at what God is about to do. In that day, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew. Now, why was God about to judge them? Because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. If you look at the ESV, it says he did not restrain them. Most other versions besides the NASB use the word restrain, and that's really the meaning of this word here. He didn't stop them. He let it go on. He let this wickedness proliferate in his own family without doing anything. He just mouthed a few mild correctives here and there, but he didn't do, he didn't exercise his authority as the head of that home to bring God's righteousness into that family. What he should have done is kick them out of the priesthood and said, until you boys repent and get right with God, you cannot fulfill this sacred office. Look at verse 14. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Wow. No offering, no atonement in that family. God says, I'm through with you guys. I'm done. Now, in chapter 4, the children of Israel go up to war against the Philistines. The Philistines defeat Israel, and they take the Ark of the Covenant. And a report gets back to Eli that that has happened. Look at what happens in verse 18. When this man mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken... And he died, for he was old and heavy. Now that word heavy doesn't mean that he was a little overweight, or that he was a little bit out of shape. It means he was obese. He was fat. 
This is, he's giving us a hint here at why Eli let this unrighteousness go on within his family members for so long without stopping it. It's because Eli himself was indulging and benefiting by his son's wickedness and taking out all of the fat portions and the pieces of meat that they wanted. He was also indulging himself in eating those sacrifices. You'll say, oh, Brian, how do you know that? Well, go back to 1 Samuel 2, verse 29. Here's God's prophet speaking to Eli. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making, not your sons, yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel? The reason I believe Eli was fat and obese is because he was indulging himself in the sacrifices along with his sons. And don't you know, a father really has no moral authority to correct his children when he's doing the same things they are. When there's sins in his children's life that he's participating in, in himself, it's like the, the parents who say, I'm, I command you not to smoke cigarettes while you've got a cigarette in the other hand. Or there'll be no alcohol that'll pass your lips while you have a Budweiser six-pack every night. <laughs> you know what I mean? If, if you are committing the same sins that you're commanding them not to commit, they're, gonna, they're not going to listen to you. They're going to do whatever they want to. And self-indulgent children usually have indulgent parents. I don't know if you look around and find children who their, their parents just kind of lent them run rapid, it's because there's a lack of self-restraint and self-control in the parents' lives. And if they will not discipline themselves, how in the world do they ever expect their children to be disciplined? So it really comes back to the parents. We see the reason why Eli would not restrain his sons coming back to his own lack of self-restraint. He had grown obese because he had given himself to his fleshly appetites and he wasn't willing to discipline himself there. So, fathers, let's bring it back to us. What about us? Eli was passive when it came to doing his job in the family. He was a passive dad, a passive father. Are you passive in the home? Or are you active? Do you sit in your lazy boy barking out commands, bring me another Budweiser, you know? <laughs> or do you get up when that child has done something wrong and you go minister what that child needs, whether that's the rod of correction or whether that's a good stern talking to or whatever is appropriate for that child, do you get personally involved in the life of that child? Not only that, but are you involved in teaching your child about Jesus Christ, which is the greatest instruction that they need of all? Folks, Dads, especially, if we fail here, we're failing big time. We need to be personally involved in opening up this book, reading the words of the, on the pages of this book to our children, and explaining to our kids what it means, and urging them to repent and turn away from the sin in their life and to cleave to Jesus Christ. What this means is that fathers, you need to take responsibility for worship in the home. Now, I don't know if this is happening in your families or not, but it should be. And men, it's our responsibility to make sure that happens. 
And if it's not happening, God will hold us responsible because we're the head. He's, he's given us charge to, to command our children to bring righteousness and justice to pass. And if we neglect this area of responsibility, in the end, are we really going to be much better than Eli, who didn't restrain his sons but let them do whatever they wanted to do? God has called us to this, men. Rather than being passive in this area, we need to be involved. And I would, I would encourage you, men, there's many ways you can do this, but one of the best ways that I know how is just after dinner, bring a Bible, set it on the table, and after dinner, before anybody gets up, have some time reading God's Word and discussing it as a family, asking questions of your children, drawing them out, asking them questions of the text. Take a book of the Bible and read through a paragraph a night and just discuss it together. What we've been doing is going through the book of uh, Samuel, and now we're in Kings, and we'll read a chapter a night and just discuss it together. And it's just a way for us to revolve around Jesus Christ together as a family. So I lay the charge upon you men. Make sure that happens. Take your authority up in the home and use it for good. I know... I do know this. I, I believe I can speak for you that the greatest desire of your life for your children is that they'd be saved. I think I know that's your desire because I know it's mine. I, I, you'd be willing to give up your house, your cars, your jobs. You'd be willing to ro relocate. You'd be willing to do whatever you had to do if it meant securing the salvation of your children. Well, if that's true, act on that desire. That's a good, holy desire. Act on it. Don't let your children just grow up choosing whatever they want to believe in, doing whatever they want to do. Bring God's Word to bear upon their lives, and it can bear fruit, lasting fruit. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask this morning, especially for the dads here, especially for those dads who have children, in the home, that God, you would help them to take up this responsibility. The Lord, we can learn what not to do from Eli. And we can learn what to do from the Apostle Paul, who tells us to bring them up in the nurture and admonition, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We pray that we would not Shirk this off, Lord, but that we would be diligent day after day after day, making it the habit and pattern of our life to invest our, our pouring out ourselves into the lives of our kids and pouring into their hearts and minds the Word of God, teaching and admonishing them from Your Word. So, Lord, I pray that You would cause the dads to take hold of this and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen.